Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, I want to go over to John Wu. He is the president of Ava Labs. We've talked to him before about the crypto world. And John, it's great to have you back on this morning. Um, we were almost caught off guard by a PBOC headline saying that all Bitcoin, all crypto transactions in China will henceforth be considered illegal. What exactly does that mean? Everything having to do with crypto except for just holding it is against the law? Hi, Paul. Hi, Matt. So it is not 100% clear how they define transactions. And a lot of this is actually left as a signal so that people realize that they don't like this stuff and that you should be wary as opposed to having specifics out. But really, this is nothing new from what they've been doing all year in terms of what they were doing with technology and um, what they've done in crypto. Basically, in 13, they restricted banks from handling Bitcoin. 17, they uh, banned exchanges. 19 and 20, they were doing the same thing to Bitcoin mining. What they are against is basically losing control of their monetary system and worried about capital flight. All right, John, how should we really step back and think about this here? Uh, you, anytime China you know, makes a move, it has global repercussions. What do you think? I know we haven't a lot of time to really ponder this, but what do you think this means for just the crypto space in general if China is going to be perhaps way more restrictive than we thought? There's a lot of resilience in the crypto space. When they were banning, China was banning mining um, in 19 and 2020, their mining in China was about 70, 75 percent of the global mining for Bitcoin. It is down to 40 percent, but nothing slowed down because a lot of that is now in West Texas. So the U.S., we have benefited from some of their um, authoritative actions, if you will. And even locally, individual China nationalists have found ways to ultimately be involved in the space, whether as a developer or as an investor in various uh, you know, tokens. They all are very resilient. Users and developers and miners ultimately find some way to do it properly. And hopefully we in the U.S. can continue to benefit from their harsh rules. What is the problem? I mean, are they concerned that too many people are going to speculate and may, um, you know, lose their savings. Are they concerned that wealthy people are going to use crypto to move assets out of the country? Why is China so virulently anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto? So that's the, the last point is correct, in my opinion. They're worried about capital flight. Don't forget, they actually love the technology. There, I mean, people forget there is a Chinese central bank-backed digital yuan, that there are CBD, you know, uh, wallets, central bank wallets that they have airdrop and distributed the digital yuan to individuals. They love the technology. They are just against losing control of the monitoring system and giving up too much freedom. Well, I mean, John, are you or should China be concerned that they will lose their ability? If they're not really part of the crypto market, they might lose their positioning in there? They should, and we should. 
Um, and this is why, you know, decentralization is so powerful in this world of blockchain and, and crypto. Investors, developers, users are all able to find a way to continue to grow the ecosystem. And the ecosystem is at the point now where it's not just about capital in the sense of Bitcoin, the way China is looking at Bitcoin and, and as a possible digital flight mechanism or store of value or medium of exchange. There's actually real utility now, utility in terms of a decentralized finance system. I've been on talking to you guys about NFTs yep. and it's utilization of not just crypto native people, but also traditional people, artists, entertainers, right. and financial services professionals. Interesting. All right, John. It was great to get you on here. Lots of uh, news shaping this space right now. John Wu, president of Ava Labs based in New York. We have uh, been talking a little bit about the infrastructure bill, the, the possibility that that gets passed or maybe watered down a little bit. Let's bring in someone who um, relies on knowledge of this for his living. Josh Dietz is senior portfolio manager over at Aberdeen Standard Investments, and he is specifically the manager of the Aberdeen Standard Global Infrastructure Income Fund. So, Josh, what do you know about where we stand in regards to Biden's uh, spending plans? It seems like right now, it's, um, you know, a lot of discussion will take place next week on it, and they're trying to group the $3.5 trillion new plan with the $1.2 trillion true infrastructure plan. Now, we viewed the $1.2 trillion as a true infrastructure plan with spending on important infrastructure assets for the future, such as the power grid, for broadband, the $3.5 trillion we don't really view as infrastructure, and that's really, to me, much more a typical um, spending package rather than infrastructure. All right, Josh, I, I personally went down to D.C. and made my pitch for the Gateway Plan that is so critical for the uh, metro New York area. So besides Gateway, what are some of the interesting areas you're looking at in this bill as Wait, you think what is about the gateway plan again? It's the new tunnel underneath ah. the Hudson River to replace the 100-year-old railway tunnels for Amtrak and New Jersey Transit, you know, like a gajillion people a day Why go through. Why haven't so, they built, like, three in the last 100 years? It, yeah. don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's New Jersey and New York. That's all you need to know. So, um, Josh, so beside my beloved gateway, what else is in this bill that you're focusing on? So there's two areas that we think are primed for growth and are happening with or without the bill. But it's just really a catalyst. Um, one is a $65 billion for the power grid. And that we need an updated power grid because of all the renewable energy we're starting to produce here in the United States. Last year, for example, we spent about $25 billion just on wind alone. Solar makes up about 3% of our U.S. production. That could grow to about 40% by 2035. So we need an updated power grid for the transmission lines to transmit that energy produced. The other part is for the broadband. We're spending about $65 billion, extremely important to make sure that rural areas, low-income communities have access to 4 and then 5G. So we, we really believe that's the two areas of growth for infrastructure, one on the renewable side, and two um, in towers for 5G. So who makes money off this? Or, or what, what are you investing in? Um, who do you think the winners are going to be? The, the winners are, to me, clear as day for when we talk about the transformation from 4G to 5G, we should invest in the towers. We've seen 
25 to 30% data growth. That's only going to accelerate when we have 5G, just as a data point. If we get to autonomous vehicles, they're going to generate as much data per hour as equivalent of an iPhone's use over 3,000 years. So we need um, more dense, more dense towers globally. So we like companies like AMT here in the U.S. and CCI. In Europe, we like companies like Selmex big, big beneficiaries going forward uh, for 5G. And we think we're in the early stages of that growth. It's going to last a decade or so in order to densify the towers. The other side, as I mentioned, on the renewable energy, we're spending more and more, not only here in the United States, but also in Europe. In Europe, we, they spent $50 billion on building wind last year. That's only going to accelerate. accelerate. If you look at the EU, they propose a fit for 55 which basically means that the 2000 and the 2030 emissions targets are going from 40% of 1990 levels to 55%. Beneficiaries of that are Nextera here in the United States, RWE in Europe, Enel in Europe. So we think there's a lot of beneficiaries for that. Matt, I worked on those uh, IPOs of Crown Castle and American Tower, and those are just really awesome uh, companies, True. awesome businesses, man. It's just a nice... It's almost like a real estate play, and the driver is 5G and just increasing use of data. So how has the sector performed in general, Josh? I'm just talking infrastructure. How has your sector over the last several years performed? So we have one fund that's been around for 13 years, ASGI, and that's performed extremely well, roughly 12% annual returns. Infrastructure is fairly wide. So when you ask how the infrastructure sector has performed as a fund, it's performed well. There's different sectors within infrastructure. There's the communication sector, as we mentioned, the towers have done extremely well. The renewable energy plays within utilities have done well. In the, trans in the transport sector, that's not done as well, because, especially because of COVID, when we've seen people not flying. So we own airports and roads globally. That hasn't performed as well recently. Hey, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, great timing here with this infrastructure bill winding its way through Congress to kind of get your thoughts here. Josh Dietz, Senior Portfolio Manager for Aberdeen uh, Standard Investments. He's specifically a portfolio manager of the Aberdeen Standard Global Infrastructure Income Fund, so he knows a thing or two about what's happening there on infrastructure. Uh, and again, that bill winding its way uh, through Congress, a lot of pieces surrounding it, whether it's going to be tied to the greater spending bill, uh, and that may slow it down. But the, the expectation is that bill is bipartisan support and will get through. Well, the whole concept of a globalization, at least in my mind, seems to maybe have lost some momentum over the last four or five years as many countries look more inward, uh, maybe perhaps led by the United States itself. Let's check in with Tracy McMillan, head of global asset allocation strategy for the Wells Fargo uh, Investment Institute. They've got a new report out that looks at globalization. So, Tracy, again, maybe it's just me, but it feels like it's lost a little bit of momentum. You know, America first, you. all that kind of thing. Lots of nationalism across Europe and Brexit. Brexit. Thank you very much. Uh, what do you think, Tracy? What did you find? Yes, and thank you for having me today. Uh, so what we found was that globalization is definitely changing, but we don't think that it's ending. 
you know, we, we don't think that all production of goods for U.S. consumers will return to the United States. And we don't think that all good ideas um, are located within a certain geographic border. But we do think that countries uh, are going to continue to trade. And the cost of that trade, though, is going to include more than just the pure cost of the goods. So in, in other words, you know, some of those, um, some of those things that are blocking globalism, populist sentiment, separatist movements, internet control, um, media censorship, you know, some of the things you're alluding to there are, are definitely going to add cost to globalization as we know it. I mean, the president of the United States, Great Britain, these are things that were blocking globalization as well, right? But now you can add supply chain issues. Are, aren't more companies trying to bring their production home or make it local to where they sell their goods? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right about that. Supply chains are definitely evolving. And, um, you know, the fragmented supply chains that we've grown accustomed to, you know, those that are across a lot of different low-wage producers, um, production centers, those are becoming um, more concentrated, we think. We, we think they're going to be more high-tech and more regionalized. And, you know, we think a great example of that is clothing. So, you know, think about how, uh, you know, the fibers used to be put together in material in a certain you know, group of countries, and then that fabric would be sent to China. China would construct the garment, and then it would be sent to the United States. And so now we think that those supply chains um, that created vulnerabilities and dependencies are, are going to start to coalesce around the major consumption centers of the world. And that's going to be the U.S. and China and India. So, Tracy, how much does – I mean, it's it seems really over the last 25 years that globalization has just been a – just a given, and it's technology. It's just how businesses are evolving or becoming more interconnected. Can that be stopped? I mean, it just seems like it's just a natural evolution, even if for a period of time the United States doesn't want to lead or even if the U.K. doesn't want to be part of a bigger EU. Is it something that's just natural? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things we observed is that trade of goods as a percent of global GDP has been falling. So if you think about, you know, manufactured goods, that's what most of us think about when we think about globalization. But that has indeed been falling as a percent of GDP uh, since 2008. And that's as those production facilities do start to locate closer to the end market. But the interesting thing here is that digital technologies are spurring future trade growth, and that's mostly in services. And the services, you know, include things um, that are, um, you know, considered anything as a service. So, you know, we're looking at things like uh, people and companies that purchase capital resources and then loan out the um, productive capacity of those uh, capital resources. Trade in services is 23 times higher since 1976, and it's doubling every five years. So by 2040, some estimates are that services could represent 50% of globalized trade. 
So it's really all about digital then. I mean, not all, but the lion's share of what you see as the future of globalization depends on the Internet. A lot of it does, yes. Um, so it will depend um, on information technology. Uh, we think consumer discretionary companies and healthcare companies are also poised well to benefit um, from this evolving trend. And we think that U.S. companies are poised well to benefit from this. Um, you know, U.S. companies benefit from um, having different differentiation. Um, they are also uh, very innovative and they are prepared for a world where we think that there could be big shifts in production centers and they'll need to have a deeper knowledge of local consumers. So that's where that um, digitalization, information that instantaneously crosses borders all come into play. How about China? I mean, I'm sorry, how about India? Because it seems like China perhaps isn't necessarily going to be as welcoming as perhaps some business leaders thought over the last decade or so. Is India the next big thing? So we do think that India is going to play a significant role in globalization going forward. They already have a competitive advantage in services, whereas you know China may have that competitive advantage in production. Uh, we think that India has the competitive advantage in services and will continue to have that. Um, we also think that because the population in India is young and growing, and they also have a growing middle class, that there are uh, quite a bit uh, of investment opportunities associated uh, with India. All right. Very cool stuff. Um, really cool report. Tracy McMillan, thanks so much for your time. Tracy McMillan is the head of Global Asset Allocation Strategy at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute, and she's talking to us about the Investment Institute's globalization report, which is, I mean, it's suffered, I think, to yep. some extent under um, President Trump and and Brexit and the nationalism that we see across Europe. But then again, obviously, because of the coronavirus pandemic, maybe even worse because of the supply chains that were tripped up amidst lockdowns globally. This is Bloomberg. Kind of a mixed uh, morning here, but coming off of some of those uh, early uh, trading session lows, let's get a sense of where we are here on this market. Tremendous amount of volatility this week. We're going to welcome Dave Harden. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Summit Global Investments. They have approximately one point. $8 billion in assets under management. So, Dave, kind of a wild week here. We started off with a big, big sell-off, maybe a little contagion coming out of China, some of those fears. But, boy, this market has bounced back, and the buy-the-dip folks seem to have won the day. What do you make of this week and this market? Well, uh, th thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And it has been a very volatile week, right? And I think the volatility continues. And so, yes, by the dip one, but the, the story's not written yet. It's, we're not over yet. And you saw the, the wall of worry just getting higher now with China and the crackdown in crypto. Um, I don't think the Evergreen is over yet. The technical conditions are extremely high right now. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot more volatility to come. So if you're holding a stock and it's not where you want it to, to have it. Just wait a little while. 
<laughs> it might get there. Right. Total. Um, which is, by the way, I guess in China, if you're holding Bitcoin, that's your only choice right now because <laughs> you can't right. make any transactions. Uh, in terms of the Evergrande issue, what are your big concerns? Well, contagion going to HSBC, going to other stocks that have exposure over into China. Um, you know, Nike's down today, but it's really not the same situation. It's the Vietnam issue. So what, what I'm worried about is the contagion of other issues coming into stocks that have no play whatsoever in that area. That's what I'm worried about. So, all right, Dave, where, you know, there's a lot of people that are, in fact, we concerned about this market uh, kind of you know whether it's a valuation concern whether it's just a frothiness concern when they look at certain segments of the market uh, and we saw that on Monday perhaps in, in some of that uh, trading certainly early in the day where do you feel comfortable deploying capital uh, in markets today it, it just feels like even with the 10-year at 1.4 percent and change that's not the place where are you thinking about your allocation well, that's a really good point. And it's funny how finally investors are caring about risk, right? No one cared about risk for a long time. And so when you think of risk management and deploying capital right now, you know, some of the things that come right to my mind is like Costco. So Costco, here's a very fine stock. Everybody knows about it, or if not, they're members of the stock, you know, members of themselves and shopping there. But it's a stock that's done tremendously well. If you look over the last year, it's basically been the same return as the S&P 500, but with a significant less risk. We're talking about a 68 beta, so a lot less volatility, good equity returns. And moving forward, I would say outperforms the market going forward. Domestic, so we, we know the domestic situation extremely well with COVID. You think emerging markets, Vietnam, you know, China, we don't know those situations as well. So you understand this very, very well. You shop there. This is a very good stock to own right now. What about consumer? Um, we've seen consumer confidence fall drastically. I'm not saying that's going to hit Costco necessarily, maybe even a boon to uh, a company like Costco. But what, what about the effects on the economy? Are you concerned? Well, yes, we are. But I think that people, there's still money that's being spent. And that money that's being spent, I think, has to be smarter. I think it has to go online. And so they have great numbers. Um, I, I think their online presence continues to grow. They have a loyal membership as well. So I see the same thing out of Target. Even though worried about retail, yes. Worried about consumer confidence, yes. But they have a history of beating their earnings, earnings top and bottom line. The back to school looked good. I, I really think that you know, that's another good place to put money. You understand the story. You don't have to worry about unforeseen risks and downside risks. Just watch COVID and continue to do what you do, which is the consumer shops. So David, in these two cases, I feel comfortable. A couple places you seem less comfortable, and that would be kind of what I would call kind of some reopening trades. You have sales on Southwest and Zoom. Is that just a, a call that, hey, Delta's here and you better put the brakes on the reopening trade? Not really. I think there's some more of that in Zoom. I, I think it continues to struggle with growth because of the reopening trade, but more competitors come into play. Microsoft Teams is, is used heavily and is rolling out new webinar features and rolling out new conference call features. And so I see GoToConnect and Google and other players there that I don't see them, that growth story everybody was buying them for, 
really turning out. And let's face it, it's underperformed the S&P 500, or in this case, the Russell 2. But, you know, the index, if you will, by about 80% over the last one year. And I don't see that bouncing back. That's not the right time. Southwest, a little bit different. Yeah, there's a COVID story with all airlines. And all airlines have struggled over the last three months, recently over the last maybe two or three weeks doing okay. But Southwest here, you have an abrupt quit from senior management. Uh, You have some business travel extreme going on uh, that's not coming back. So I think that over the long term, I'm not negative on airlines or reopening there as much as I would say Southwest with the downside risk, I'd rather own Delta. I actually traveled for business recently. How was it? It was the worst experience (laughs) I have ever had. I never want to do it again. But you're Um, probably going to have to. I will do it one more time when I move back to New York. And then that's <laughs> okay. It. Down the Until wall. airlines just generally improve. Like, is there any mode of transportation that's worse than an airline? I would rather ride the subway than an airline. I just can't. Subway rocks. Yeah, especially. I love the four or five. All right, David, days. you've got to buy on, on Exxon here. Is this a dividend play? Because, I mean, again, looking at the 10-year, 1.45%. Yes, that's higher than what we've seen recently, but still a very low yield. And energy you know, we got WTI crude oil up at 73. It's been ripping. What's your call there on Exxon? Yeah, I, I, I'm very positive on Exxon. You have a yield that's high, like you mentioned, 6.6%, what have you, plus. So you're getting paid to own the stock. I don't see crude going lower because of supply issues and other things. It's up about 40% over the S&P 500 over the last year. And so though it's cooled off the last little while with oil, and it does trade in coincide there with oil, the reality is, is Exxon, I feel like, is a very good performer, especially for the risk you're taking. Again, what's the downside risk here to Exxon? It's really just oil. There's not much. Governance is great. What they're doing is good. Um, and if we ever get control of this stupid virus, um, the reality is, is that there's going to be more demand. So long term, I think this is a really good stock to own. What do you make of the big moves in rates? Uh, David, we've seen the 10-year yesterday was up 10 bips and today another five. Well, I, I think it, it, sh- it goes to show the concern that investors have, especially the institutional investors, right? So we believe that there is a shift going to the early deceleration. It's underway. Um, if you're not looking at your portfolio right now and saying, how do I manage risk, then I don't think you're making your portfolio better for tomorrow. Because risk is here, and it's coming um, in greater amounts in the future, and the volatility is going to continue. So I think you have to look at what wins in the future, not necessarily what's won in the past. All right, David, thank you so much for uh, chatting with with us. We really appreciate it. David Harden, CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Summit Global Investments, uh, $1.8 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.